Welcome to the Why on Earth Community Podcast. I'm your host, Aaron William Perry, and today we're visiting for a second time with author and activist John Perkins. Hey, John. Hi, Aaron. Good morning. How are you? Great. Good to see you again. Likewise. John Perkins is the author of the New York Times bestselling Confessions of an Economic Hitman, which is now coming out in its third edition, as well as Touching the Jaguar, The Secret History of the American Empire, and Hoodwinked. He has lived four professional lives as chief economist of a major global consulting firm where his actual job was that of an economic hitman for which he was clandestinely trained by agents of the so-called Washington Consensus, as CEO of an alternative energy company, as an expert on indigenous cultures, and as a writer, teacher, and speaker who promotes ecology and sustainability. He co-founded the nonprofits Dream Change and Pachamama Alliance and applied his consulting fees to championing indigenous rights and environmental movements, working especially closely with Amazonian nations. Confessions of an Economic Hitman has become an international bestseller in 38 languages and has sold over 2 million copies. He has been featured on ABC, NBC, CNN, CNBC, NPR, A&E, The History Channel, and in time, The New York Times, The Washington Post, Cosmopolitan, L. Der Spiegel, and is now here with us today on the Why on Earth Community Podcast. John, welcome. It's great to have this opportunity to speak with you again. Thank you, Aaron. Thanks. Thanks for that. And I, I want to make clear that the third edition is not like the third printing of the old book. It's uh, mostly new. It's about the China's economic hitman. So it does go into some of the old stuff, but the, the subtitle is China's economic hitman, uh, how to stop global, the global takeover. It gets confusing sometimes when people think of third edition, they go, well, it's third printing. No, it's different. <laughs> yeah. And it's been, it's been really great to uh, dive into that over the last several days, preparing for our discussion. And I, I want to ask you about China specifically, but before we get to that, I think to help frame this up for our audience, uh, let's discuss and revisit what's going on with your distinction between what you call a death economy and a life economy and specifically what is it that you're referring to when you use the term predatory capitalism can you explain this for us sure uh well first of all the the, the death economy is something that i helped create it's uh, it's based on max the goal of maximizing short-term profits essentially for a few few major investors uh, regardless of the social and environmental costs. And uh, it, uh, it's really taken us to all the crises that we have today. So if we look at climate change, income inequality, species extinctions, and environmental destruction, and so on and so forth, those are symptoms of a greater problem, which is that, I mean, those are all big problems, but they're, but they're symptoms of what we call a death economy, which is this economic system uh, based on maximizing profits and 
and materialistic consumption. Uh, and, you know, it, 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 it's ravaging the earth, it's polluting itself and, and uh, consuming itself basically into extinction. We all know in our hearts, we know it's not working. Uh, the, the life economy, on the other hand, is an economic system which human beings have had through most of our history. If you look at our history as being 250,000 years, the majority of that, we've, we've lived really a life economy, which is an economic system that's, that's built on long term. It's built on looking at how, how we can provide better for our children and grandchildren and, and future generations. It, it's based on, on maximizing long-term benefits for life, uh, not just human life, but all life. And in today's terms, we could say that it will pay people to clean up pollution, uh, pay people to uh, mine all the plastic that's floating around in the oceans and recycle it, pay people to clean up the environment, uh, regenerate the, the destroyed environments, and uh, recycle, develop technologies that don't ravage the earth. And, and you know, Aaron, I, I think we're, 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 we've been headed in that direction for a number of years now. Uh, benefit corporations, B corporations, the, the, the Green New Deal, conscious capitalism. Uh, there's so much that's been going on in that direction. Electric cars, solar and wind, which is now really poised to totally replace fossil fuels, not, not because we're going to ban fossil fuels, but because solar and, and wind are becoming much more economical. Um, so we are moving in that direction. Uh, but we need to make sure that we continue to move there and not emphasize this very short-term uh, profit motive. And I have to say that, you know, the, the, the roadblock for that is Wall Street, and it's a whole concept of investing money and making huge uh, rates of return off the, those investments, especially for a, very, for a few very rich people around the world. One of the things I found to be so um, important in your new version of the book uh, is in the the appendix, a death economy versus life economy that gets into some more detail describing each and uh, adding to what you just shared with us. So that, that was one of the pieces that caught my attention when I was looking through the book, John. It's great to see that. And, when, and you mentioned predatory capitalism. Well, people often say we've got to get rid of capitalism, but to me that doesn't make a lot of sense because uh, the little farmers markets uh, in all over the world in, uh, and the indigenous people have had for, for millennia, and we still have, those, those are capitalistic. Uh, you know, my grandson's uh, lemonade stand is capitalism, basically. So capitalism by definition is a form of, of uh, an, an economic form that uh, where the where business and industry is not owned by the government, it's owned by private individuals, and it's highly competitive, but it's also very cooperative. It's not cutthroat competitive at all. And you know what we have today is in the United States and much of the world is an economic system where the government doesn't own the means of production. Of course, that's different in China and a few other countries, but in the United States, the government doesn't own. Uh, our businesses, but the businesses own the government, essentially. You know, <laughs> we all know, Aaron, that 
that you don't you can't get elected to a high office in the United States without a lot of money. And most of that money comes through corporations or the owners of those corporations. And they have a lot of influence. A CEO of a big corporation that can donate millions of dollars to political campaigns and lobbyists um, has a, a lot more influence than you or I. You might say that that that, that CEO has has a lot more votes than you and I have when we go to the polls. It's not quite that simple. But we know they have a lot of influence. So what we've really done is turn capitalism on its head. It, it's, you know, the means of business are not owned by the government, but but the business owners own government, essentially. And it's become very predatory. Uh, it's not, you know, it, it, it's not highly competitive. The big, big companies, you know, the, you know, the stories of Walmart and chasing uh, the small uh, drugstores out of business and, and uh uh, all these huge big chain stores putting smaller people out of business, uh, trying to get rid of of uh, competition, forming more and more monopolies, and it's happening throughout. So that's predatory capitalism. It basically preys on all of us, consumers and small businesses. Yeah, and so the directionality here that that we're hoping for and working toward is moving away from a predatory capitalism to. Uh, something we might call a stakeholder capitalism, a community capitalism, or even a stewardship capitalism, right? This is something you've been speaking to for some time now. Yes. And maybe we ought to just forget the word capitalism. You know? it, I mean, it triggers all sorts of things in people. I found that over time. You know? And uh, I, I think, it, you know, what, what we really want to move toward is whatever means it takes to create a life economy. And that does include uh, co-ops. It includes a lot of emphasis on local business, small businesses, local agriculture, as much as we can do locally. At the same time, recognizing that we have been globalized. Uh, you know, we, you and I couldn't, wouldn't be having this conversation. We're in two different parts of the United States, and there's people tuning in perhaps all over the world. Uh, and, you know, we are, we're connected globally, and that's a good thing. But the more we can do in terms of businesses, in terms of the food we eat, and in terms of the, the clothes we wear and the houses we build and so forth, the more we can rely on local businesses to provide those for us, the better off we'll all be. And of course, the same is true in energy. You know, we talked earlier about solar and wind. One of the great things about solar and wind is it doesn't need to be centralized. You can have that. Every house can have their own unit uh, or every community uh, can have their own units. And that's a that's a that's a step in the right direction for many reasons, many, many reasons. And not the least of which is that, you know, they don't get wiped out by hurricanes or people shooting up uh, substations the way that we've seen that uh, our centralized systems are extremely vulnerable uh, to these outside influences. And now increasingly to cybernetics that we know that, you know, somebody with a computer can take out a, a an entire power grid. Yeah, absolutely. Well, before we turn to China and what's going on there, I want to ask, because I, I think the history here is so important for folks to understand. What happened in the 1970s with von Hayek and Milton Friedman, uh, two Nobel Prize recipients, uh, economics Nobel Prize recipients? What happened there? in terms of the shaping of our narrative, uh, the shaping of our perception, which you point out molds reality, uh, that has had such an impact over these last few decades in particular. 
Yeah, I, I love that what you said. I, you know, we do know that that our reality is totally shaped by our perceptions of reality. There's no United States. <laughs> there's no China. There's no corporations. There's no culture. There's no religion except as people perceive them. And when enough people accept a perception or codify it into law, it has a huge impact on reality. And when I was in business school, which was uh, pre-1976, uh the perception was, uh, I was taught that a good CEO makes a decent rate of return for investors, maybe two three cent, 3% above inflation. We had something called blue chip stocks, <laughs> just, just, just that, 2% two above inflation or so. But a good CEO also, I was taught in business school, takes really good care of his employees, gives them health care and insurance and retirement uh, benefits, and takes good care of the communities where the that the corporation serves. You know, donates money to recreation centers and, and and other services. Takes good care of consumers and suppliers. That all changed in 1976 when Milton Friedman won the Nobel Prize in economics, and he said the only goal of business should be to maximize short-term profits regardless of the social and environmental costs. And you mentioned von Hayek. He'd won the Nobel Prize a couple of years earlier, said something very similar. But Friedman had the ear of Reagan and, and Thatcher and many other world leaders. He was extremely well known and traveled around the world promoting this idea that all you got to do is maximize short-term profits. And that'll take care of everything else. Uh, he said that, that, that'll, that'll, that'll solve the environmental and social issues. And of course, we know it doesn't. Trickle-down economics serves the rich, uh, not the not everybody else. Uh, so that was this huge change in perception, and it changed everything, the way business was done. So it actually gave a mandate to corporate executives to do whatever they thought it took takes uh, to maximize short-term profits, including essentially corrupting uh, elected officials. And when I say corrupting, uh, these days, they corrupt legally. It's not a, so. It's not legally speaking. It's not corruption. But you know, basically buying votes. Uh, they say you can buy a senator's vote for ten thousand dollars. You know, I don't know. I haven't actually done it, but <laughs> that's the saying. And and uh, of campaign financing. And it's not, it's totally legal. It's not an under the table ten thousand dollars. It's so. Um, so with this this theory of maximization of short term profits as a, as the goal. As the as the mandate, uh, it puts it, executive officers in this position where they almost have to ignore environmental and social benefits, or they they may lose their jobs. Uh, and that was this huge change of perception. Now, the good news, Aaron, is that we are going through something similar to what happened before Friedman. Now, but in the other direction, headed toward looking at the long term, looking at creating a life economy. Like I said earlier, benefit corporations and and uh, conscious capitalism and, and so forth are moving in that direction. So before von Hayek and before uh, Friedman, there was a movement m moving toward this direction of maximization of short-term profits. But they really, they get the perception out there in a way that created actions that actually made it happen. So we're in a position now, I think, where we could move in that direction. What we need is, is to really understand that we must change the perception of what it means to be successful businessmen, human beings on this planet. It is not about short-term maximization of materialistic consumption. It's about long-term benefits for all.
Yep. Wow. So, so beautifully articulated. And thank you for sharing some of this history with us because I think it's so important for us to have a better understanding of how we got to where we are. Speaking of history, of course, China and the Chinese culture has a very deep and long history. And to transition now to focus our discussion on what's going on with China specifically, uh, f- fill us in. What What is happening under the leadership of Chairman Xi, uh, the New Silk Road, et cetera? What, what's at play here now? Well, China has taken over the world. <laughs> Some people say, you know, we can't let China take over the world, but they, they've done it. It doesn't mean they're going to that we can now go back in and, and, and compete. But the, but the fact of the matter is they are the number one investor and and the number one trading partner with, with countries all in every continent. Uh, they are the major world trading partner and investor today in Africa, Latin America, Asia, the Middle East, Europe, even the United States, uh, in North America. Uh, and that's happened to a certain degree because they really learned their they, their economic hitmen learned from the successes that I and and my fellow economic hitmen in the United States had, and also from our failures. Uh, and the other thing that I mean, there's a lot of things happen, um, but one of the big ones was that after 9/11. Uh, the United States, we focused all of our attention on the Middle East, especially Iraq and Afghanistan. We sort of forget about Africa and, and the rest of Asia and, and Latin America. Uh, China, on the other hand, stayed out of the Middle East at that time and, and really devoted huge efforts to developing what they're calling the New Silk Road, this massive trading network and, and making investments in all the rest of the world. And now, of course, they're moving into the Middle East now that we're kind of dropping out of there. So uh, they made tremendous inroads and they have a talk about perception that they have a a very attractive story to tell to leaders of poor countries. Uh, The story is, well, listen, you know, we had we averaged about 10 percent economic growth for three decades and we brought 700 million people out of poverty. Uh, Nobody else has ever done that before. At the same time, the United States uh, uh, we didn't have that kind of economic growth at all. Our middle class has de- actually declined in, in, in since the 70s. Uh, we haven't had a real, when you can count for inflation, a real wage increase, average wage increase since the 1970s. So if you're the leader of, of Colombia or Ecuador or Nigeria or Ghana or some other country, and you're looking at well, which model do I want to buy into, the perception can very well be that you might prefer to take China's model. And at this, at the same time, Aaron, I mean, this, this is, it, I wrote a whole book about this, so I'm covering a lot in a very short period of time. Oh, yeah. I apologize. But, you know, the other thing is that I talked to leaders and, and uh, I'm, you know, I'm headed to Latin America in, in January. I, I go several times, most every year. And, and I spend a lot of get and I'm going to spend a lot of time in Europe and parts of other parts of the world this next year and always do and have virtually recently. And I hear, you know, if the United States is a democracy, we don't want it. Uh, you're dysfunctional. Uh, you know, you, you've had a president who negated all the agreements previous presidents made. Uh, your Congress can't seem to compromise on anything. 
uh, we're not we're not looking too good to the world. You and and, and of course the, the argument is made well you've actually almost overthrown democracy in your own country and there's still a possibility that that'll happen. So you know we hear these things. So in a way we have to take responsibility in the United States for really opening the door wide to China. And China has done a very good job of stepping through that door and taking advantage of our failures, our mistakes, as well as learning from our successes. One of the things I notice in your writing is that there there is a, a tenor of concern around China's ascendancy. At the same time, you are uh, emphatic about the need for increased cooperation among all of the nation states in the global community. And I'm, I'm curious, especially kind of picking up on this previous thread you just mentioned and the fact that the United States has interfered with, if not uh, toppled, uh, even through assassinations, uh, many democratically elected leaders and governments around the world as part of its foreign policy over the last century or so. Uh, do you see it as a positive or a negative that the United States uh, prime position in the global community is is being ratcheted down a bit, especially since the setup of the Washington Consensus Institutions, Bretton Woods, all of that uh, uh, engineering that occurred uh, around the time of the Second World War. You know, I, it's a it's a mixed bag, but I think the I think the United States. We, we 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 missed a really great opportunity, frankly. Um, when we set up the World Bank and the other Bretton Woods institutions at the end of World War II, uh, they were aimed at reconstructing a, a Europe devastated by the war, and they did a great job at it. They did a great job at it. And I, I had great respect for what the World Bank did uh, when I went to business school and then went into work, did a lot of work with the World Bank as an economic, as a chief economist, which was my official title. Um, but along came, comes the Soviet Union in the Cold War. And at that point, these institutions focused on promoting our form of capitalism around the world and democracy uh, and, and trying to convince countries not to buy into the Soviet system. Uh, so we became obsessed with that. And that included supporting huge big corporations, helping um, U.S. corporations become much more multinational. Uh, when the Soviet Union collapsed in 1991, uh, at that point, we, had a, we were the only superpower and we had an opportunity to show to the world what a great influence we could be, how we could really promote democracy and a good form of capitalism. But instead, these institutions were so tied in with corporations and, and there was this patterns established that the emphasis was much more put on helping U.S. corporations uh, gain the resources of, of other countries, oil, minerals, all sorts of resources and markets. So, so these, these institutions became much more oriented toward promoting U.S. hegemony. And at the same time, we implemented something that's known as neoliberal economics, which is a, an economic theory that says that you, um, you, know, you shouldn't tax the rich because trickle-down economics works, they, they say, and you, you, you should cut back on social benefits to everybody else and because people should earn, you know, they should, they should earn these things. We shouldn't give them 
uh, uh, <laughs> shouldn't give them social benefits. Uh, and also that companies were encouraged through neoliberalism to privatize their public sector uh, businesses like water and sewage and electricity and, and take them out of government hands and give them to basically U.S. investors in, in many cases. So this neoliberalism uh, was something that put tremendous pressure on governments. We also put pressure on governments to join us uh, in, in voting with us at the United Nations against Cuba or whatever, and allowing us to put military bases on foreign soils, where we now have military presence in well over 100 countries. This has caused a lot of resentment. Uh, the Chinese are making a very important point that they're not going to do that. They don't try to dictate how, they say they don't try to dictate how a country runs itself. Uh, and they pointed out that, that their success, their economic success did not include neoliberalism. They didn't privatize. They went the other way, actually. So most of the major corporations in China are owned, at least in part, by the government. And they show this as a benefit. Um, so uh, it's, it's an interesting aspect to look at, at how this works. China comes across as being much more benign uh, with governments. And we can say, well, that means they support dictatorships. And it does mean that, but they don't necessarily support them. They don't oppose them. But we've actually supported them. And this is pointed out to me a lot, you know, where I, I say, well, you know, we're, we, we promote democracy. And they say, yeah, well, what about Saudi Arabia? <laughs> what about Iran under the Shah? What about um, so many other countries, Pinochet's Chile? And, you know, our whole, we have a long history of supporting brutal dictators as well as democracies. So, again, it, it, this has really opened the door for China to step in. Um, so there was this void created after 1991 when the Soviet Union dissolved. I, I think we blew some tremendous opportunities. And then along comes China. And in 2012, 2013, when Xi became head of the government there, he saw the opportunity to use everything that China had done before him to grow its economy, to become a, a world-class economic power. And he saw the way to use that and go out to the rest of the world and bring the rest of the world in, into the Chinese sphere. And so he's been very successful at doing that. I think things are beginning to maybe perhaps turn around a bit now. We can talk about that more if you want, but I think things are there's, there's now beginning to be some backlash against China. And I think the United States is beginning to understand that it has to step to the plate and do more in the world. Absolutely. Yeah, I'd like to talk about that before we go there. Um, I, I would like to ask you to briefly describe the four pillars of the economic hitman strategy with fear, with debt, with anxiety, and the divide and conquer uh, strategy. Because I, I think it's really important that folks understand this because some of these forces are not only at play in the broader uh, global uh, landscape, but also can affect us at the individual level as well. Could you just run through that really quickly for us? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I wrote a whole book about it. So yeah. read, <laughs> read, the, read the book, right? Read the book for sure. So, let's, let's see what we can do. So, um, yeah, these four pillars, they've been around for hundreds, a couple of thousand years, you know, I mean, the, the, the Romans and the, and the ancient Chinese kingdoms and, and the Persians and, and so on and so forth. Uh, use them. Uh, so the, the the first one is is fear, the fear of invasion, and 
you, 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 you know, your fear that another country is going to invade you, so you ally with them, or you ally with 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 someone who can protect you against this other country. And oftentimes, this fear is created by the person that wants to, by the country that wants to make the allies. But that's a that's a very very old one. The military, militarism, basically, uh, debt. So people have always used debt, you know, and it isn't always money debt. Uh, that can be, you know, the, the the debt that we know of with the mafia, you know, like okay, so you know, I'll uh, I'll help you out with your daughter's wedding and so on and so forth, and then later, you know, like I need to have that guy's knees broken over there. You go break them because you owe me. Or in the old days in empires, you know, the, you know the, the 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 king would offer his daughter in marriage to the other potentate who was a little weaker than him and then, then the other potentate would have debt to him through so on. So debt's a very, very old one also. And then there's the fear of scarcity. Uh, that is a, a huge one, the fear of poverty and the, the idea that, well, if you join ours, if you join our sphere of influence, we can bring you out of poverty. We can use the World Bank or China can use the BRICS Bank or whatever to bring you out of poverty. So but that's also been around forever. The sphere of of, of not having enough to eat, not having not having wealth. And the last one, divide and conquer. Again, you know, like, yeah, come join us and, and oppose them kind of thing. These have been around a long, long time. But for many years, Perhaps the most important one was the fear one, uh, the the uh, militarism and the divide and conquer, and that and potentates, kings, and so on and so forth have have used this for millennia. Uh, that changed radically after it, when I was in when I was an economic hitman in the seventies because the failure of our military in Vietnam was a shocking experience uh, for, for not just for the United States, but for countries everywhere to look at that, how the military, a huge military power, the United States, was defeated by people who had, you know, little cannons mounted on bicycles and shot down our planes with those little cannons on bicycles. <laughs> you know, I mean, this was shocking. And it probably shouldn't have been shocking because actually during the American Revolution, we kind of did the same thing, you know, hide behind trees and 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 and, and this greatest army in the world was uh, the British Army was defeated by a handful of, you know, farmers, basically. But it's still, it was shocking in the 70s when that happened. So that was when I was an economic hitman. And at that point in time, the decision was made uh, to rely a lot more heavily on debt. So listen, if you can put countries in debt, you go in, I go in and I say, hey, here's a country that has oil, some resource we want. And we're going to make you an offer that uh, uh, we're going to give you a big loan. And you'll use that loan to hire our companies uh, to build big infrastructure projects in your country, like power plants and industrial parks. And these will, of course, make our country, our companies rich, big profits, but also they'll help you. And you're talking to the leaders of countries who own the businesses and industries. And yes, they will benefit from more electricity. And we don't bother to mention that that'll take money out of the general coffers to pay for education and health care and other social services for everyone else. It won't help it. It won't help the majority of the people, but it will help a few of the rich people who we're talking to. And 
And then we say, but since at some point you won't be able to pay your debt off, and so we'll help you by using the collateral, which is your resource. You you give that to our companies real cheap, oil, minerals, markets, whatever. Uh, give that to us real cheap without many environmental or social regulations. And so, you know, we decided that this was the way to conquer countries, basically, to bring them into our sphere. And our sphere... We might call it an American empire, but it really isn't. It's a corporate empire. And the United mm-hmm. States supports it, but big time. But some of these corporations, you know, in, in, infamously uh, Halliburton, don't, I don't even have their headquarters in the United States. They're in, you know, they're in, in, in Dubai. Uh, and these companies don't have any loyalty. They, they try to avoid paying taxes, and the big ones do avoid paying taxes. They don't have any loyalty to the United States at all. But the United States, but they do, they bribe, they, they, they bribe our Congress people legally, uh, and they hire a lot of, uh, they have a lot of leverage through uh, lobbyists and other consultants that they use. So, so they use the U.S. big time, but they're not loyal to the U.S. for the most part. Interesting. Well, before we transition to some of the good news and some of the positive emerging trends that you're seeing and tracking. I want to remind our audience, this is the Why on Earth Community Podcast. I'm your host, Aaron William Perry. And today we're speaking with author John Perkins, who has written many books, including Confessions of an Economic Hitman, which uh, now has a fully updated third edition available and uh, want to thank some of our sponsors we have in the why on earth community a number of folks who are giving monthly through our monthly donation program and if you're giving at a 33 dollar or higher level we're happy to send you a shipment of our biodynamically grown hemp infused aroma therapy soaking salts from waylay waters you can go to whyonearth.org support to sign up if you'd like to do so we also appreciate all of the likes and subscribing on our YouTube channel, our social media uh, pages, and so on. And of course, uh, a special thanks to several of our affiliate partners. This includes Purium, Four Sigmatic, Chelsea Green Publishers, Organic India, and again, Waylay Waters. You can go uh, use the code YONEARTH with these companies to get special discounts on their products. And you'll find links at whyonearth.org slash partners dash supporters. Of course, also want to mention the new book, veriditasbook.com, that features much of the wisdom of guests like John and others who have been on our podcast. And uh, want to make sure, John, that we uh, tell folks where they can get a copy of your book and how folks can connect with you as well via social media and otherwise. What are the best uh, URLs to direct people to John Perkins.org uh, or uh, economic hitman book.org.com. Uh, Sorry, economic hitman book.com or John Perkins.org. And you can order the book pre order it. So, what you've got there is a, is a, is a pre publication uh, copy, a galley copy. And that's why it's got a little banner across the bottom, <laughs> across the, but just above the flag there that says that. Uh, so it's not in the bookstores yet, but it will be in February, and you'll get a copy in February. But I'd love to have you pre-order now. Uh, and if people, you know, you, if you go to my website, you'll see how you can see how to do that through you know local bookstore or wherever you buy books. 
and uh, that also, if you pre-order, it, it makes you eligible for a relatively otherwise, for a free, relatively otherwise fairly expensive um, webinar uh, program that, I, that I'll be doing in March. Oh, that's great. What a great offering. Um, so that's johnperkins.org and economichitmanbook.com. And uh, yeah, we encourage our audience to pre-order and read this book, everybody. This is a really important education on some of our recent history and also uh, current trends that are affecting all of us right now on the planet. And John, picking up that thread, what is it that you're seeing in some of these positive emerging trends that are hopefully shifting and resetting some of the balance and behavior of the United States, our companies, our citizens, and others around the world. What is it that we can be hopefully hopeful about right now? Well, first of all, Aaron, I think it's important to point out that before the pandemic, we were really well on the way to creating this life economy, and and, uh, there was a tremendous influence. There was a little step back during the pandemic, but the pandemic also taught us that we can change and we can actually enjoy the change and benefit from from the change. You know? I mean, we, we, despite all the, the problems and the deaths and the tragedies around the pandemic, it also taught us that we are able to make some changes and learn from those changes. Uh, and so once again, we see we're moving in that direction. This the idea of cars and, and, and other technologies that don't use fossil fuels. And the incredible uh, technological advances that are being made in solar and wind, uh, that are making it less, ex- uh, that are making it much more affordable uh, than um, than fossil fuels. And of course, just this past week or so, there's been announcements around fusion energy, which I think is very exciting. Although it looks like that wouldn't be commercialized for a couple of decades, it's hard to know. But there's been a big breakthrough in that. So I think people around the world are understanding that we must change. And I'd have to say, you know, I taught at an MBA program in Shanghai in China. And one of the things that really struck me about the students there, the Chinese students who who designated, and this is one of their biggest uh, MBA programs, the most important ones. And the students were, have, are basically designated to be the future leaders of China. And, uh, you know, one of the things they kept saying is, look, you know, we Chinese created an, e- an economic miracle that uh, nobody else has ever done this 10% for 30 years and bringing over 700 million people out of poverty. But it came at a ho- horrible price environmentally and socially. And we're very, very aware of that. We've had to live through the terrible pollution, uh, air we couldn't breathe, you know, and d- huge problems. We- we've seen that. We don't want that for our kids or our grandchildren. But we've shown that we can create a miracle. So we, the new generation of leaders, we're going to create an environmental and social miracle. And will they do it? I don't know. But um, they they certainly have been making some attempts. Bloomberg recently came out with a, with a study that showed that in the past seven years, China has done more to abate pollution there than we've done in the United States in 30 years. So... Uh, you know, and I'm not trying to paint China as a good guy and the China's done a lot of bad things and a lot of good things, but I am trying to say that all over the world, people are getting it. And let's face it, there are no bad people. <laughs> you know, we all want the same thing. We want clean air. We want 
nutritious food. We want good water, potable water, and we want good soils. We want good homes and we want good futures for our kids and we want health care and, and education. Everybody wants that. And there's this bad leaders. There's no question about that. We got, we got a few out there right now. There's very bad leaders. You know, we've seen that in, with, with, with Putin, who for a long time was beginning to look like a pretty good leader. He did a lot of amazing things with the, with, to bring up Russia's economy. And then he kind of went off the went off the hook you know it's <laughs> crazy but um but people around the world need have the same needs and we we must understand that we all need to come together to create a future that our children will want to inherit because we're not going to do it in the United States alone. China's not going to do it alone. Nobody's going to do it alone. We can only do it if we work together. We can disagree on just about everything else. You know the China we can we can fault the Chinese for what they're doing in Taiwan and Hong Kong and with the Uyghurs, and they can fault us for what we've been doing in, in Iraq and in Afghanistan and with our prison population, which they point out is outrageous, the way we treat our prisoners and our immigrants, that, that the way we treat immigrants. So, so they criticize us for these things. We criticize them, and we can continue disagreeing on, on many, many, many aspects. But let's agree on one thing, and that is nobody thrives, nobody survives on a dead planet. And we're, we've been headed toward creating a dead planet. So let's understand that we all need to focus on agreeing that we must transform the death economy to a life economy. Absolutely. Well, John, it is uh, such a joy to have the opportunity to visit with you again and to share a bit more of your perspective and wisdom specifically around this transition to a life economy. It's wonderful. It's beautiful. It's a joy to be connected with you. And again, uh, want to encourage all of our audience to get your book, uh, Confessions of an Economic Hitman, the third edition. And while you're at it, get uh, Touching the Jaguar too. We had a previous uh, podcast interview with John about that as well. And uh, before we go, John, and we may uh, be able to record a behind the scenes uh, shorter piece together in, uh, to share with our ambassador network. So hopefully we'll have that available as well. But uh, before we sign off for this uh, moment with this podcast episode, I just want to open the floor up to you to say anything else, share anything else you'd like to uh, for our audience in these, uh, in these special and momentous times we share together. Thanks, Aaron. You know, I think above all, I'd like to say that I think we should all feel blessed that we live at this time because we, we're at a time of human evolution like no other time that human beings have ever experienced, uh, where, where we really are poised to redefine what it means to be humans being on this planet. And in this new Confessions book, uh, I outline a lot of things everybody as an individual can do and five questions we can all ask ourselves, which basically are, what do I want to do for the rest of my life? How will I do this in a way that will help transform a death economy to a life economy? What's stopping me from doing what I most want to do for the rest of my life? And 
four, what, what is, you know, three, what's stopping? What are the barriers? Four, when I really look at these barriers, how can I change the perception so that I can turn this around? And five, what are the actions I take? And the book goes into the detail of how you, how you do that. But I think it's really important for everybody to understand that we are, all have the power to make this happen and to enjoy the process. So that in such a question, what do I want to do for the rest of my life? You know, for, for me, I answer, I want to write. I love to write. I want to keep writing. And how do I do this in a way that transforms a death economy to a life? I write about that. I try to inspire people. What's stopping me? Well, maybe I don't have enough time to write. Why do I confront that? Well, maybe I should turn the television off for an hour every night and write instead, you know, and, and then what actions do I take? I got to write, <laughs> you know, and, and I think, you know, whether you're a plumber or a parent, a parent or a teacher or a carpenter or a, a podcast host, or whatever you are, these are questions we can continually ask ourselves. And and uh, I, I think to, to understand that every one of us has an important role to play in this process. We have the power to transform this death economy to a life economy, to create a world that our future generations will thank us for and will want to inherit. What an exciting time, Aaron, truly exciting. And, you know, Programs like yours that are bringing this out to people are so inspiring and and uh, exciting. Again, I, I keep using that word, but I, I'm, I'm excited. <laughs> Absolutely beautiful. Well, thank you so much, John, for visiting with us and for sharing these insights and, and this wisdom with us. It's much appreciated. My pleasure, Aaron. Thank you. Thanks. Take care. Yep. Bye-bye. Keep, keep up your great work, Aaron. I love what you do. Thank you, John. Likewise. Talk soon, my friend. Okay. Thank you. Bye. The Why on Earth Community Stewardship and Sustainability podcast series is hosted by Aaron William Perry, author, thought leader, and executive consultant. The podcast and video recordings are made possible by the generous support of people like you. To sign up as a daily, weekly, or monthly supporter, please visit whyonearth.org backslash support. Support packages start at just $1 per month. The podcast series is also sponsored by several corporate and organization sponsors. You can get discounts on their products and services using the code WHYONEARTH, all one word with a Y. These sponsors are listed on the whyonearth.org backslash support page. If you found this particular podcast episode especially insightful, informative, or inspiring, please pass it on and share it with a friend whom you think will also enjoy it. Thank you for tuning in. Thank you for your support. And thank you for being a part of the Why on Earth community.